Shall we get, shall we get busy? If you have a turn to Mark 14, we'll be doing that. It was a number of months ago. I wish I could tell you the exact day, but as my wife says to me all the time, nobody, that really doesn't matter. Just tell the story, right? So it was a Tuesday morning, and I was working on my sermon for the following Sunday, and I was in a zone. You know the zone, right, Philip, where it just is coming fast, right? And so you, almost as fast as you can type, right? And I was about three or four hours into it when all of a sudden my screen went blank. It just went black. And I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. So I rebooted, and when I did, the document I was working on did not appear. That is not cool. <laughs> so I, uh, I, work, I use a MacBook Pro, and this doesn't happen very often. It's only happened a couple times. And uh, so I called my administrative assistant, Jessica Pasley. Hey, get in here, stat, I've got a problem. And she came in and sat down and did several things. And then she looked kind of over her shoulder at me because I was, you know, pacing behind her. And she said, did you by any chance save the document? And I said, gosh, why are you making this like it was my fault? You know, the apple failed us. So I called my my daughter, who just had the baby, this was several weeks ago, or several months ago, and I, she's kind of an Apple genius, too, so she spends 18 hours a day in her job on Apple products, and so I called her, and I said, hey, could you help me? This is what happened, and she suggested I try several different things, and then she asked, she said, Dad, did you by chance save the document? Because <laughs> why are you guys making this about me? This product failed me. I had failed to do the simplest function that could have saved me all of this heartburn, stress, and anxiety. The frustration that I felt was directly due to me not making the, taking the necessary steps to protect against that. And I wish I could tell you that that's the first time it had happened. It wasn't. I started rewriting my sermon, trying to remember everything, and now all of a sudden... It's not coming fast and furious. <laughs> I'm, I'm very slow and moving. This was more painful because in my head, I kept going, gosh, if you had just done this, this is all my fault. I had failed to save the document. I could have spared myself all the stress. If you're like me, you've had times in your life when you found yourself in the middle of a stress storm, the pressure is there, the, the frustration is there, and sometimes it's directly related to mistakes you've made. You're overwhelmed, and it's far worse than just a document that disappears when your screen goes black. You've, you've got this sinking feeling because it's so serious that you feel like you're going down and you're going down for the last time. As we're continuing this series, as Micah said, from Mark chapter 14, in this text we see Jesus facing one of those moments. Intense pressure, unbelievable stress. There were a number of challenging times in his life, but really there were only two significant moments where he was under great stress in his life. The first one was in the desert after he had fasted for 40 days, and then the devil came and tempted him. He was under tremendous pressure. And the second one happens here in Mark 14, where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
and the pressure is on him. He is under great distress. So we pick it up in verse 32 and following. It says this, they, that's Jesus and the disciples, went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Jesus and the disciples go to a place called Gethsemane, which is a garden located on the Mount of Olives. It's about a 10-minute walk from Jerusalem. The name Gethsemane comes from a Hebrew phrase that means oil or olive presses. And what they did was they would grow these olives and then they would put them in a press and they would squeeze the oil out of them. They used the oil, olive oil for numerous things, all kinds of different things. And it's believed that at one time Gethsemane was likely an olive grove that had an oil press. But that's not the reason they're there now. Gethsemane is a quiet place, a spot that Jesus had often visited. He went there to pray, to meditate, and sometimes just to rest. Following the Last Supper, Jesus went there with his disciples to pray. And he personally goes there to prepare for what he knew was coming. Prior to getting to the Garden of Gethsemane, though, Jesus warned his disciples. He said to them, you will all fall away. (laughs) Kind of a a stark, kind of abrupt comment. You're all going to fall away. But then he assured them that they would meet him again in Galilee after his resurrection. And then he quotes the prophet Zechariah. This is what he says. Strike the shepherd, that's Jesus, and the sheep will be scattered. And you will see this happen before the text is over. They're all going to abandon him. They're going to scatter The disciples were not able to wrap their heads around this information. And we know they didn't understand what Jesus was saying because three days later, when the report comes back that he has been resurrected from the dead, they don't believe it. Had they listened to his words and believed him, they would have saved themselves a great deal of anxiety and stress and frustration. And Peter alone would not have denied knowing him. So they get to the garden, and Jesus tells his guys to have a seat, and then he takes Peter, James, and John, the three of the disciples that he's closest to, he takes them with him to pray. You know, during times like this, stressful times, it helps to have someone with you, someone you can can draw some encouragement from. Someone who will pray with you. Someone who will put an arm around your shoulder and whisper, it's going to be okay. Shortly after Ann and I moved to Lexington, uh, she was driving home from work one day. And she was uh, unfortunately given a, a ticket for running a stop sign. Now, while driving her car home, not far from our apartment the car had started making this terrible noise. Now, what, what I found out later that day when I got home was that the, the power steering reservoir was completely out of power steering fluid. And so it was making this grinding sound. And she wasn't sure what it was. It was an old Ford Torino that her parents had given her to drive. And so it's this big kind of 
you know, noisy car anyway, and she thought, if I stop, it might not go again, right? And so she rolled up to this four-way stop, and she looked both ways, and then she just went on through, you know, it was clear. But in our neighborhood, there had been construction in the back of the subdivision, and these big dump trucks were just flying through this four-way. And so someone had called and said, hey, these guys are going to kill somebody, so they had a cop come, and he started handing out tickets to these truckers and this one young girl in a old Ford Torino. <clears throat> so she and I talked about it, and she said, I think we should go to court. We're going to pay court costs anyway. Let's go to court, and let's tell them our story, because maybe they won't, <laughs> we won't have to pay the ticket. And she goes, we can't afford to pay the ticket right now because it was too expensive. So we went to court. Now, she and I had never been to traffic court before. And truthfully, we'd never sat on a jury. We never been called for, you know, jury duty. We never had even been to court for any reason because, you know, we had not been arrested for anything. It's good to know that, isn't it? Yeah. Your minister had never been arrested. <clears throat> anyway, so we go in there and we're sitting in there and we're waiting and we're, we're nervous. I can tell. Anne's, she's stressed. and I, I don't know how to make her feel anything, to feel any better about it. But while we're sitting there, all of a sudden I see on the other side of the courtroom a lawyer who was a member of the church where I was working at the time. And he saw me and he was like, you know, one of those, what are you doing here? Right? Because they're doing all these DUI cases and here I am sitting there, right? And, uh, and, I, and he says, meet me in the back, right? So I get up and I go back there and I explain the situation to him. And he says, he goes, give me the ticket. Let me go see if I can do something. Because this is his domain, right? And so he goes out of the courtroom and then he comes back in about five minutes later. And, and he motions me back and he says, uh, hey, I told your story. And they decided to drop the ticket. So you guys are free to go. Now, it's a huge blessing to have someone who's going to stand with you in the middle of a crisis, right? And initially, for us, it was great just to see a friendly face in that environment. But for somebody who actually will come alongside you and help with the problem and make it go away, that was a great, that was a great blessing to us. It brings me to the point when I think about Jesus taking the three disciples and saying, come with me, guys. It reminds me of a simple axiom, and that is this. Everybody needs somebody to lean on, don't we? When, when <clears throat> everybody needs somebody that they can count on when they're going through a stress storm. And Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. Who are your go-to people? When a crisis hits, who's the first person that you call? Do you have anybody like that in your life? Do you have a couple people like that? They're those who are going to weep with you when you weep, and they're going to rejoice with you when you rejoice. And you may not see them all that often just because of the season of life you're in, but when there's something serious that hits, they're the first people you call. They're the ones you text. Do you have people like that? If you don't, I want to encourage you to go to nccleaxorg groups, Check out groups that are available and start, start building some relationships with some people who will care about you. Because everybody needs somebody. 
Everybody needs somebody to lean on. When one is about to experience great difficulty, most people want to have someone with them to help share the burden. This past week, I went to the hospital twice. I couldn't go see my granddaughter because of COVID stuff, but I got into some other hospitals. I'll just leave that on the side. But I went to see one guy whose father had just been put into hospice. Sadly, uh, yesterday his dad passed. And then I went to see another guy on Tuesday who had just gone through cancer surgery and he was starting chemotherapy. And I went and visited him. And if that was you, who's coming to the hospital for you? Who are the go-to people you can count on? If that were you, who? Being perfectly human, God in the flesh, Jesus wanted companionship as he faced the cross. And he selected Peter, James, and John to go with him to pray. Then we read this. We'll reread verses 33 and 34 again. He, he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply de- distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, Stay here and keep watch. That's a key phrase. In this text, keep watch. Mark writes that Jesus was distressed and troubled. And then he quotes Jesus describing how he felt. He said he's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, which graphically portrays the distress that he's feeling as he focused on going to the cross. Jesus' own comments probably could be easily said something like, I'm so sorrowful, I feel like it's killing me. The burden was great. The appeal to Peter, James, and John was a simple one. Keep watch. It's the Greek word watch, Gregorio. It means the suggestion of watching out for temptation and keeping alert to the movements of Satan. Because if there was ever a time that these guys are going to face it, it's right now in the garden because Jesus is on the cusp of heading to the cross and they're going to they're gonna see him die. And there's a lot of potential for them to, to turn their backs and run. A similar idea of this keeping watch is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says this, discipline yourselves, keep alert. That's that same word, gregarios. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. He says, hey, pay attention. Be on guard. Be alert because this is what could happen. Your spiritual enemy is looking to devour you. If you are a disciple of Jesus, stay alert. You're in a battle. Disciples of Jesus Stay alert, because your enemy, the devil, wants to take you out. He wants to eliminate you. He wants to compromise you. He wants to make you irrelevant. If you, have a, if you are a light for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the devil would like nothing more than to snuff out your witness. He will tempt you. He will lie to you. He will accuse you in the attempt to throw you off your mission. And he often will hit you when you're stressed or you're exhausted or you're deeply troubled. 
when you're at your weakest point. And Jesus told the three who were the closest to him to keep watch for temptation and to keep alert against Satan. And that is great advice for us today. In the world we live today, that is great advice. Mark continues in verses 35 and 36. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus uses two metaphors here. The first one is this hour that he talks about. The hour might pass from him. This is the hour that it will set into motion all that's going to happen in this redemptive process that God has called Jesus to. And then he talks about it as a cup, a cup in which he's going to drink from. And he's asking, if it's possible that you could take this cup from me, but it's his will that he's interested in, God's will. Jesus knew that he was gonna suffer and die, but it wasn't his suffering physically that seems to be the most uh, cause, the cause for his being most overwhelmed. Instead, it's the thought of being forsaken by God the Father. He knows there's that moment coming. This was the cup that he would drink. There's one other thing that's important, I think, in this text, and that is that Jesus did not tell the Father what to do here. A lot of times we approach God and we say, God, you need to do this, right? And God's like, you be interested in what my perfect plan is? Jesus doesn't do that. He comes to the Father, and three times he prays about this matter, that this cup might pass from him. And each time Jesus yielded to the Father's perfect will with loving surrender to that plan. Verse 37, 38. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, remember, Simon is the source of Mark's, you know, information for this gospel. He's the one he's interviewing to get all of this information. And it's interesting that Jesus comes to Simon. He said to uh, Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray, gregarios, and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Yeah. Jesus was distressed and troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The stress that Jesus was experiencing was extremely intense. Luke, Luke describes it this way in Luke twenty-two forty-four. He says, and being in anguish, he prayed most earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus was under tremendous pressure and stress. So he asked the three disciples who were closest to him to keep watch and pray. But what do they do? They fall asleep. Earlier in the evening, Peter had vowed that he would die with Jesus. And now he couldn't even keep his eyes open to keep watch with him. Couldn't you keep watch, Jesus says, gregarios, there's that word again, for one hour. Watch, gregario, and pray. Jesus generally is rebuking the disciples, and then he warns them, watch and pray. This is an admonition that is often repeated throughout Scripture. 
This word, again, means to be alert as you pray. Keep your spiritual eyes open, for your enemy is near and he is real. And the reason Jesus says all this, to watch and pray, is not just about him now. It's about them. Look what he says. He says, so that you will not fall into temptation. I have a sense that Jesus knows that if they're tempted, they may not be able to withstand it. So he's drawing attention to the fact it's coming. Watch and pray will foil the traps of the enemy. That's why Jesus says it. If you watch and pray, you're going to see what the enemy is about if you're looking. It's so vital for our spiritual health that we watch and pray. In fact, following Easter, we're going to start a brand new series titled When the Fight Calls. And we're, in this series, we're going to examine what the devil takes aim at and how we can fight back in a spiritual way. Okay. Verse 39 and following, Mark writes, Once more he went away, that's Jesus, and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Despite the fact that Jesus had relieved his disciples, excuse me, revealed to his disciples what was going on in his heart, that he was deeply distressed, still the disciples fall asleep. Hey, this is a big burden to me. Just pray, watch and pray. Just keep watch, be alert. And minutes later, they're out. Reminds me of a simple truth, and that is this. Even in dealing with Jesus, people will let you down. They let Jesus down. I mean, if you are ever gonna support somebody, wouldn't it be Jesus? People will let you down. Jesus prays, he comes back, they're sleeping. Verse 40 says this, this is kind of interesting. I wonder, I wonder how this came about. But he says, they did not know what to say to him. I can imagine Peter telling Mark this, and he said, and when he came back, I mean, it was like, we didn't even know what to say. Like he'd said, hey, watch and pray, stay alert, and then we're sleeping. I imagine they're not even making eye contact with him because they don't want to draw attention to the fact that they couldn't carry they're into the bargain. It's not like Jesus asked them to explain anything. They just knew they'd let him down. So Jesus goes back and he prays and he comes back and they're sleeping again. And the third time he goes and he returns and he finds them sleeping. You see the pattern here. These guys can't stay awake. And then he says, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. It's that hour of sacrifice, the hour that previously he'd prayed to avoid, and that hour when he would die for the sins of the world. He knows now that that hour of suffering and death will not pass from him. It's at that moment Judas and the temple guard arrive to arrest him. And we read this in verse 43 and following. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared with him, appeared with him, was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man 
arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. The crowd with Judas is armed with swords and clubs. This suggests that they're military or paramilitary personnel. This is not a lynch mob, but a delegation that was sent from the Sanhedrin. This is the religious uh, council that sent these men to arrest Jesus. The fact that Judas brought this large crowd of armed men is evidence that neither he nor the religious council really understood who Jesus was. They thought that Jesus might try to escape or that his followers might try to fight back or maybe Jesus would do some kind of miracle in order to avoid arrest. This crowd that is with Jesus was not a group of men who knew Jesus very well. So Judas kissed Jesus, which is the prearranged sign or signal that he's the one to arrest. It's probable, very probable, that a kiss was a common method of greeting at that time. With a kiss and then this greeting of rabbi, Judas perhaps wants to make it just look normal. Like that's how he always greets Jesus. But it's a signal. It's a signal that he's the one to be arrested. And to me, it's tragic that a kiss was the actual action of his betrayal. It was the It was the key to Jesus' arrest. So the men seized Jesus and they arrest him like a common criminal. And one of the disciples draws his sword, Mark says, and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest, a man by the name of Malchus. Mark doesn't tell us who it is, but John does. John says it's Peter. Now remember, Mark is the one who's getting all of his information from Peter. And I don't know. Mark surely knows it's Peter, but he does him a solid because he doesn't put it in the text. But John does. John's like, hey, just just for the sake of information, I want you to know it was Peter. It's Peter. Peter did a foolish thing by attacking this man because, truthfully, Christians don't fight spiritual battles with physical weapons. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So what are these weapons? Well, in this text here, in in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul doesn't spell out actually what the Christian weapons are, but I think he may be referring back to chapter 6 in that same letter. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 6 and 7. He says, impurity, which is a weapon, understanding, patience, and kindness. In the Holy Spirit, there's a weapon and in sincere love, that's another weapon. In truthful speech, and in the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness, in the right hand and in the left. These are all weapons. Those are all weapons. These weapons are far better suited for battle 
to win the day than the sword that Peter used. Peter used the wrong weapon at the wrong time for the wrong purpose with the wrong motives. And had Jesus not been there to heal that man's ear, Peter likely would have been arrested as well. And there may have been a fourth cross on Calvary that day. Well, Mark wraps it up in verses uh, 48 through 50. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. They will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Jesus had two messages right before they haul him away to trial. The first one he says is, am I leading a rebellion? And that's kind of an ambiguous translation. A better translation is, am I a criminal? The word that's used here is a Greek word and it It's used throughout the Gospels and elsewhere to describe violent criminals. In fact, the plural of this word that Jesus uses here is the same word. It's it's the plural version that's used in the story of the Good Samaritan. When a man fell among thieves and robbers and he was beaten and robbed and left for dead. You remember that? The word that's used there is the same word Jesus uses here when he says, am I, am I leading a rebellion? Am I a criminal? He wants, them to, he wants them to understand. The point that he's making here is that they're coming after him with swords and clubs, suggesting that he's somehow a violent man who needs to be subdued with weapons. And nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the prophet Isaiah prophesied this. In Isaiah 53, verse 7, he said this, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Clearly, this show of force was totally unnecessary. And then the second message Jesus openly contemplated was, Why didn't you arrest me earlier? Why now? I mean, he easily could have been arrested during one of his numerous trips to the temple. Times when he was there, teaching in public. He wasn't hiding from anyone. He was a public figure. He didn't hide out and like some criminal who needed to be tracked down out in the hills outside of Jerusalem. Jesus viewed all of this that is happening and what it was leading to as a fulfillment of the Scripture. He knew what was coming. And Jesus had previously been preaching and teaching his disciples of what was to come. You remember back in Mark chapter 8? He said, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, same guys who came to have him arrested, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. This is just beginning to happen. The scriptures are being fulfilled. And though the, there is no subtlety to it, the reality is much of this had been predicted. It's then at this point that the disciples must feel the heat. Jesus is in... Incarcerated, he has been arrested, 
And Mark says, they all flee. The disciples, they leave him, which illustrates a key point. There will be a point in everyone's life when someone will desert you. People will desert you. It's not always. In fact, it may be rare. But even close friends have the capacity to desert you at times. And you will find yourself alone. At some point, someone will abandon you when you need them the most. It's at times like that, a time like where Jesus is right now, where he could have used the support of his friends, and yet they abandoned him. Jesus is now alone, physically, but he reminds everyone that he's not alone completely. Jesus said in John 16, 32, yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. The Father is with me. And God is with you as well. No matter what you go through and no matter who may not show up or may walk away in your moment of deepest trial, you may find yourself all alone. And it's important to remember the Holy Spirit dwells in every Christ follower. That is part of the triune God in me. Never forget that. Remember what Hebrews 13 says, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I think that's a message that people need to hear in this world at this moment today. Because no matter what they might be going through, no matter what the stress, no matter what the storm, no matter what the anxiety, no matter what the pressure is, if you're a Christ follower, God has promised that he is with you. And though people may abandon you, God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Never forget that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story of Jesus in the garden, setting into motion now the beginning of Jesus' trip to the cross. There's gonna be a trial, number of trials. There's gonna be some testimony, it's false testimony, claiming Jesus to be what he wasn't. And eventually, the necessary people are gonna sign off and then he's gonna be carrying his cross to a place called Calvary, and it's there that that very cross he'd be nailed to, and he'll die. And God, it all starts right here in the garden, the beginning. Jesus went there to prepare, to pray, spend time with you, to get ready for what he's about to face, and that's a great truth, God. Thank you for that. I pray that we will spend time with you every day to prepare for what will come our way in that day. Lord, Jesus picked out three of his closest disciples and he took them a little further to just be there to pray for him, to watch and to pray, to be alert. God, we all need people in our lives. We need to be connected because there are gonna be these moments when we're gonna be burdened to almost the point of death. The sorrow is so great, it's almost killing me. And yet, God, in the midst of his greatest trial, the three let him down. They fell asleep. and He doesn't stop loving them. God, thank you for the way that you 
care about us even when we fail you. Your love is so much greater. God, thank you for that. Lord, I know that there will be people who will let us down. Sometimes they will even abandon us. They might even betray us as Judas did. But God, you're always with us. Always with us. And for that, we are forever grateful, Lord. Lord, we praise you for that. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name.